0: Thank you for allowing me the privilege of baptizing you this morning. I have uh, gotten to baptize a few folks, but not any here yet, so that was a joy. I tell you, uh, if you are skeptical about miracles, you have seen one yourself today. I got in the same waiters as Brother Brandon Powell used to wear. And so let me tell you, ladies, I now know what spanks feel like. I don't recommend them. (laughs) All right, let's look together at psalm number two today now you may be thinking wait a minute we're in first corinthians and we are but we are going to take a few (coughs) occasional breaks to delve into the psalms as we go i don't want to get in a rut and i don't want you to get in a rut and get bored with what we're doing so we will pepper in some some psalms for right now as we go through first corinthians all right psalm two let me dismiss any children between the ages of four and first grade If I didn't write that down, I might forget it and we'd be in trouble. Okay. Well, thank you for taking care of the little ones. I think Brother Jimmy gave me his cough, so y'all, pardon me. Let's pray before we get into the Word. Lord, we do pray uh, that today we'll learn more about you. Father, my, my prayer is always that when we study the Word, we will have a clearer and a better understanding of who you are. And Lord, sometimes there are going to be uh, New Testament epistles that are really easy to see how they apply to us today, because you were talking to the church then, and we're a church now, and yeah, there's a, there's a distance of time there, but still, we're operating in the same kind of way, so they're easily applicable to today. But Lord, some of, the, some of the things don't translate as well, as easily, into application for us. But Father, I know that anytime we see a little more clearly who you are It will affect everything about how we think about you and how we worship you. So, Father, help us see you more clearly as we go through this psalm. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, psalm number two. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... So what we're going to talk about today is the reign of the Lord's anointed. Now anointed, we know that means somebody who has had oil put on them, or in a more spiritual sense, it's the person who has been set apart for a certain office or a certain work. Now the kings of Israel were literally anointed with oil when they uh, assumed power, or in David's case. He was anointed by the prophet way before he actually became the king of Israel. He was the king of Israel in God's mind. Therefore, there's nothing that could change that. But it was a few years until he actually assumed power there. So the Lord's anointed, uh, if we translate that word into Greek, it's Christos, which we get the word Christ from. And the Hebrew uh, of anointed gives us the word Messiah. So when you hear the word Christ Christ, Messiah those things mean the anointed one the reign of the Lord's anointed first I want you to see the formation of a conspiracy verse 1 says why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us now, we've all heard of conspiracy theories. Most of them seem kind of silly. Uh, you know, I heard a guy talking the other day about how the towers on nine didn't seem to fall the right way for him. So he thought that perhaps there were explosives already in the towers and there's some big conspiracy that we didn't know about. Uh, then you have... The whole JFK magic bullet thing, that, that one's kind of weird. I'll give you that one. <laughs> but most of them sound kind of crazy. You know, we hear about Area 53 and alien conspiracies and all this type of thing. But just because some of them are far-fetched and maybe, uh, maybe a little out there for us doesn't mean that there aren't genuine conspiracies. You know, uh, when Watergate happened, uh, that conspiracy and the secrecy around it lasted a matter of hours before somebody started spilling their guts and trying to make sure they didn't go to jail forever. Uh, So we aren't real good at keeping secrets as, as a group of people, but occasionally there are those conspiracies that are set in motion. And here is definitely one right now. It says that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Now let me ask you, who wrote this psalm? A lot of psalms say a psalm of David or a psalm of Solomon. We don't know or we wouldn't know who wrote this psalm except that we're told by the apostles in Acts 4, 25 that King David did indeed write it. Now did he write it about himself and the kings of Israel that were to follow? Or was he writing intentionally a messianic psalm about his greater son Jesus who would appear later on? Well, I think the answer is yes. He was writing it about himself and about the kings that were to follow and ultimately about the anointed one who was the Christ. Were the rulers of the world trying to come together to take out Israel when he wrote this? Yes, they were. And you know what? They still are to this day. If you don't believe me, you could check out how the United Nations votes And you will see that the world is still trying to gather together and take out the nation of Israel. We can know for certain that this psalm is about Jesus, though, when we look in Acts 4, 24 through 27. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, when Luke, the writer of, of Acts, gets to this, he says, hey, I remember this psalm and it's a, it's a psalm of King David, but it applies to Jesus because we see that both the Jews and the Gentiles, these kings of the different nations were gathered together for the purpose of defeating the Lord's anointed. So we see that there is a conspiracy that was formed, but we also see the futility of resistance to God. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Resistance to God is absolutely futile. Can you imagine with me for a minute how ridiculous it must seem to God when puny little man who was made from the dust, who only lives a few years, and whose next breath is going to be given by God if he's going to take it, stands there and shakes his puny little fist at heaven and conspires to overthrow God Almighty. We are God's creatures on God's earth, in God's universe, and you and I will only take our next breaths if God sees fit to give them to us. And yet we have these kings of the earth conspiring to overthrow the Lord's anointed. No wonder he sits in the heavens and laughs. Let me remind you of a couple of times when big scary man tried to get the best of God. The first one is one of the funniest passages in in the whole Bible. Um, It says that he sits in the heavens and laughs. And I laugh every time I read this account. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Now... The Philistines were all the time fighting with Israel and trying to overtake them and overcome them and get their land, and and there was a constant war going on here. And in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, I don't think this is on the screen, but just listen so you'll, you'll catch the story. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now, Dagon was their god. He was really nothing but an idol. He was a statue, but nevertheless, they worshiped Dagon. So they took their spoil, they took their prize, and they put it in Dagon's temple. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So their prized treasure, their statue, was lying down Flat on his face before the ark of God. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place, because after all, he's just a statue. He couldn't get up, so they had to pick him up and put him back where he goes. When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So I think the Lord was letting them know in no uncertain terms that he was not simply the God of Israel. He was the God of the whole world. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord of of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they took the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, Causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. You see what they're doing? They're saying, we don't want to give this back because we have won this prize. We have conquered our enemy. And yet everywhere the ark goes, they start dying of tumors and plagues of rats and these kind of things. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. All right, so they said, we can't keep this thing because the God of Israel is killing us all and even killing our statue. So... What they decided to do was they'd send it back. But you know, some of them said, I wonder I wonder if I'm being paranoid here. I wonder if maybe this is all coincidence and this is not actually the God of Israel. So we're going to test our theory. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a couple of cows who have recently given birth and we're going to hook them up to a wagon and we're going to put the ark on the wagon and we're going to see what the cows do. Now they were stacking the deck against the cows going back to Israel uh i grew up on a 80 something acre ranch and we had a lot of cows and uh, i was telling my son the other day he's learning to drive and i was telling him i got a whole lot of driving practice in on my tractor you know (laughs) so i knew how to drive sort of when i got the opportunity well we had a lot of cattle and i tell you when a cow gives birth and has a little baby calf there Um, cows aren't the brightest so occasionally they'll put that calf in a thicket somewhere and they'll roam off and they'll kind of forget where it is well we always knew when that happened because that that cow would get all bug-eyed and get her head up and be sniffing and and making all kind of noise trying to call that calf and she was distressed so i'm telling you if you take a couple of cows and you pin up their calves somewhere else they're not going to wander away to israel okay they're going to go look for their babies but They said, we're going to see what's going to happen. So they put the ark on here with these cows, and they let them go. Well, God, being sovereign, tells those cows to take the ark to Israel, and that's exactly what they do. So these folks got more than they could handle when they thought they were going to get the better of God. And then another example of when man decides he's going to outsmart or outrun God, we can see the example of Jonah, right? We know how that worked out. Jonah was a prophet he was called to go to Nineveh to preach to them and he said you know what I know God's powerful but if I'm not in Nineveh I can't preach in Nineveh so I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going to head the other way well that didn't work out did it (laughs) he got on that boat and a storm came and and the the sailors who were with him said what's going on and he said well that's my God he's mad at me because I'm not obeying him and so they tossed him in the water Now, he got swallowed up by some kind of big fish that the Lord had prepared beforehand. I I like reading that part, too, because we see that God didn't go, man, i got to make a plan because I didn't see this coming. Now, he prepared that fish beforehand, and he sent it there to swallow up Jonah. So it takes Jonah and puts him in Nineveh where God wanted him the whole time. So we see that we can resist God. We can do everything we can to overcome him, to outsmart him, to outrun him, but not a single thing of it will work. So we have the formation of a conspiracy. We see the futility of resistance against God. But the next thing I want us to see is the fate of the rebels. Verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the conspirators here will be broken like a rod of iron smashing a clay pot. Now, if you take a rod of iron and smash a clay pot, the clay pot's not going to do too well, but the rod of iron is going to be just fine, right? So there's no way to get the better of God. We can't outfight him, we can't outrun him, we can't outsmart him. So if you're sitting there today and you're saying, okay, well, I'm not in the business of trying to fight against God, so. How is this going to be uh, personally applicable to me today? Well, let me tell you, I do come across people who have decided they are going to outsmart God in the following way: What they say is i 'm not sure about this whole salvation thing, but if if salvation is offered, then what i 'm going to do is i 'm going to accept that offer, and then uh, I hear there's a thing called eternal security so If I get saved, whatever that means to that person, if I get saved, then, like we talked about last week, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can rebel against God after that because He's promised to forgive me of my sins. So, it's kind of like they think they've outsmarted God in a legal contract that He didn't think through very well, right? They say, okay, I'm going to get saved, and then I'm going to be able to sin all I want because God will never hold it against me. Um, Well, Let me give you an illustration of how that might work. Um, Salvation is a relationship with Christ. It is not a one-time event. It is not walking down an aisle. It is not saying a prayer. It is not being baptized. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ where we place our faith in him. For instance, if 25 years ago Melissa and I had gotten up there before Dr. Rogers and we had set our vows and signed the paper, then we would have been married. But if that's the last time I saw her for 25 years, we wouldn't really have a relationship, would we? Uh, We wouldn't have any fruit of our relationship. We wouldn't have a credit score together. We wouldn't have a bank account together. We wouldn't have children together. We wouldn't have a home together. We wouldn't have a life together because we wouldn't really have any relationship. And what I find so many times, guys, and I hope this is heartbreaking to you because it's heartbreaking to me. I was talking to Brother Don about this this morning. We see so many people who say, I'm okay with God because I got saved. And I say, what does that mean? And they said, well, when I was a kid, I walked down an aisle and I talked to the preacher and he said, hey, if you really, if you really want to put your faith in Jesus and you, you have strong feelings about that, let's pray a prayer and and then we'll baptize you and, and you will be saved from this point on. Part of that is true, guys. That's why it's sinister, okay? it's If you do really genuinely place your faith in Christ and He changes what kind of creature you are, He gives you that new birth, then you are indeed saved. And there's nothing that can change that. But if you have a little emotional feeling and you say, you know, I think... Um, I think maybe I'm saved. I think maybe the Holy Spirit's talking to me. I think maybe He's drawing me to Him. And then you come and you you go through the motions and you say the prayer and you follow in baptism. And then you don't end up having any relationship with the Lord. You can look back on that and see, oh, I didn't get the real thing. All right, that's the difference. If you look back and you say, I did get the real thing. I love the Lord. I'm in fellowship with him. I'm doing everything I can do to learn more about him and to obey him better and better as I go. And you have a vital living relationship with Jesus. Then you can look back on that and say, that was the beginning of my life in Christ. But if you look back on it and you say, that's the last time I really had anything to do with him. Like if we had gotten married 25 years ago and then I'd say, see you then you can say to yourself, okay, I've got to quit deluding myself into thinking that I have tricked God into giving me forgiveness, and then I don't have any relationship with him at all. So we see that all the time. Uh, As we go and talk to folks around here especially, people say, no, I know I'm saved because when I was 12, I did so-and-so. And And I said, okay, that's cool. But if you came to my house and you said, are you married? I'd say, yeah. Yeah. But I wouldn't pull out my marriage certificate. I would introduce you to my wife, right? And I'd say, this is our home, and these are our children. I would show you the fruit of the relationship, not the piece of paper. And unfortunately, we talk to folks day in and day out that say, look, I've got that, I've got that certificate. Uh, you know, when I was baptized, some preacher signed this thing, so I know I'm saved, but I don't actually have any relationship with Christ. That is why you may think that your neighbors have heard the gospel And many of them probably have, but they don't understand it until they're in a relationship with Jesus. The next thing I want us to look at is the fortress of the saints. Verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what does it mean to serve the Lord with fear and trembling? Isn't that kind of weird? Because I mean, you know, when I would go speak to my father, I had a good father, I have a good father, but he wasn't perfect, like our, our eternal our heavenly father is. And yet I never went to him and thought, man, he's you know, if I speak to him, he's gonna go crazy and get irrationally angry and punish me. And I certainly don't think that about God. So why do we have a fear and a reverence when we come before God? It says uh, rejoice with trembling. But that is a great way to talk about our relationship with God because we rejoice because our Heavenly Father does accept us if we're in Christ and we can have that close relationship with Him. But there's a little bit of trembling there too because we realize from learning more and more about God's character that he is holy and we are not. <laughs> and so there's always going to be a little bit of fear when we as unholy creatures interact with God. You know Jesus' disciples when he would do some miracles like when he told the winds and the waves to be still. Uh, they, were, they were ready to get away from him. They were scared of him. They said what manner of man is this that, can, that even the winds and the waves obey him. They had a proper fear and respect of the holiness of Christ. So what is it that we need to take refuge from? It says at the very end of verse 12, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What do we need refuge from? We need refuge from the judgment of that holy God that I'm talking about. And the only thing that can secure us and give us refuge from the holiness and the wrath of God is Jesus Christ himself. And so when earlier we celebrated Cami's baptism, what we were saying is Cami has accepted the Lord as, as her Savior and her Lord. And she now has that refuge. There is no wrath of God that can touch her because she is in the refuge of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us to be clothed with Christ to be in Christ. The Bible draws comparisons between Noah's ark and Christ. So Christ is a place of refuge and a place of safety, but not from the world so much, but from the wrath of God itself. The one thing that is strong enough to protect us from the wrath of God is the mercy of God that we can receive in Jesus. So how do we apply what we've learned today? Uh, The first thing is we need to know that there will always be those who are determined to overthrow the rule of God. We learned last week, though, that even though they are determined to overthrow the rule of God, ultimately, they will give honor to God as He righteously judges those who oppose Him. So, they're always going to be there, but God is always going to win. Okay? So that's what we need to learn. We need to know that God wins All the time. So if we personally rebel against him, it is going to be to our harm because he wins. If we see injustice around us and we think it is not fair that these people can do what they do. You know, when Hitler died, a lot of people think that he died in the comfort of the arms of his mistress. And how is that fair? How is that right? Well, it's not. But don't worry about it. Because someday God will bring perfect justice to those who have rebelled against him. Now that thought is horrifying unless you're in Christ. (laughs) Because then I'm one of those rebels until I'm in Christ, right? So we need to know that God wins. The second thing is we need to see that indeed blessed are all who take refuge in him. Judgment is coming someday. It's either coming when the Lord comes back. Or it's coming when you die and you meet the Lord. Either way, judgment is coming. It is inevitable. More so than than uh, taxes and death because the Lord may come back before you die. So judgment is what is truly inevitable. You will either be swept away by the righteous judgment of God. Or you will be safe and sound in the refuge of Jesus Christ. How does that work? Let me, Let me tell you the gospel. Uh, one of the illustrations that I think is is helpful I used a couple of weeks ago and i 'm going to use again today, and that is that if God were to give you a test and it, there were ten questions on that test, okay we know there are ten commandments uh, the first is you're to honor God before anything else now there aren 't very many of it well i 'm going to be honest, there are none of us who have always put God first in every case, right. So number one, we messed that up. We can go down through the list. We, we get to the ones, don't, uh, don't steal. Well, I'd say some of us maybe say we haven't stolen anything. But if you think about when you were a kid or when you're at work and you're being paid and you kind of slack off, you're kind of stealing from your boss, aren't you? So maybe some of us could get away with the not stealing one. Uh, don't commit adultery. Okay, we got a lot of people that would say, I'm good there. But then Jesus messes that up, right? Because he says, if you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart with her already. So um, we're, we're going to break one of those commandments there. You're either going to say, no, I've never done that, and you're going to lie again. Or you're going to say, yeah, I've done that one. All right, and then uh, don't kill. Well, there aren't many of us that have killed anybody, right? <laughs> well, the problem with that is Jesus again said, if you have hatred in your heart toward another person without just cause then then you've committed murder in your heart so we see that that test of 10 questions is really hard to do well on and then i tell you what's worse the worst part of it is the bible says if you've broken one of these commands then you've broken the whole law so unless you made 100 and you said you've never lied which you know we know that's not true so don't even say that so you say you've never lied you've never done any of those things that god tells you not to do and you've always put god in his proper place unless you're willing to say you've never sinned then you realize that you've broken at least one of those commandments which means you've broken all those commandments you get a zero right that's bad news the good news of the gospel is if you place your faith in jesus what god will do is take his test score and use it instead of yours It's Jesus in my place is the gospel. So if you're here today and you're not 100% sure that you today have a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus, let me tell you, I, I don't care if you've been baptized before. I don't care if you've said a prayer before. I don't care if you walked an aisle before. What I care is, do you today have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you don't, let me urge you as strongly as I can to come up and talk with me. I can't save you, but I can introduce you to the one who can. So come and talk to me before you leave here today. Now, we're going to stand together in just a moment, and we're going to sing. And let me tell you what we do when we do that. We give folks an opportunity to do uh, three things. One of them is, if you're not saved and you want to come down and talk to me about what genuine, real salvation is, come talk to me. If you've been attending this church for a while and you say, you know, I want to be part of this church. I want to be a member of this church. I want to be uh, using my giftedness and my talents for the furtherance of the kingdom alongside these people. Then you come down. And the third thing is, if you have something you would like for me to pray with you about, it would be my honor to do so. So let's stand. Brother, what are we singing? Turn your eyes upon Jesus.